I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. With the Winter Olympics underway in Beijing, who better to talk to than the most decorated female skier in history, Lindsey Vaughn? We've been there for her triumphs and challenges, from her Olympic victories to her heart-stopping injuries. And Vaughn writes about it all and reveals for the first time her battle with depression in her new book, Rise, My Story. In this conversation, first recorded on January 11th for Washington Post Live, Vaughn tells me how the doubters fueled her drive to win. I remember very specifically every time someone said I couldn't do something. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I've mitigated the pain by, by proving them wrong and succeeding despite what they said. And that success continues for Vaughn as she's traded the adrenaline of the slopes for the thrill of a business career that ranges from fashion to venture capital. Joining me now is a legendary skier, three-time Olympic medalist, and now author, Lindsay Vaughn. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Sure. So why was now the right time to tell your story? Well, I mean, I think it it made sense, you know, after my skiing career, um, you know, to just kind of reflect on on my life thus far, my journey, you know, all the ups and downs that I faced. Um, I think that, you know, my injuries and my adversities taught me a lot about my life, and I wanted to share those stories. And also, I think hopefully, you know, down the road when I have kids, uh, have created something that they can look back on and and uh, read about as well. Mm -hmm. So you write about how you were just two and a half years old when your father put you on skis and you've loved it ever since. But what led to the drive you developed to become an Olympian, to become the best in the world? I've always been very driven. Um, I mean, I don't know really what was in me that that made me believe so strongly that I was going to be an Olympic champion. But um, I mean, when I was nine years old, I met Peekaboo Street at an autograph signing in, in a ski shop in Minnesota. And ever since then, I, I told my dad, I want to be an Olympic champion. And we created a 10 year plan. Um, he didn't bat an eye. He just hungered down and and uh, we found a way to get there. Wait, because I'm I'm glad you brought you brought up Peekaboo Street because that was the next question I was going to ask you about your meeting her uh, when you were nine years old. What was it about that encounter that lit the fire under you? It was her personality. I think a combination of her personality and the and the fact that I'd never actually seen a champion like her in person. You know, skiing wasn't very prevalent on television then. I mean. It kind of is now, but it definitely wasn't then. And so I didn't really have anyone to look up to in that way. And when I met her and I saw, you know, her Olympic medal, I thought this is this is exactly what I want to be. You know, I never thought that skiing could be a career. Um, and she really opened my eyes to that and, and really drove me to, to my ultimate goal, which is being an Olympic champion. I think I saw an interview um, that she was giving where she said she talked about the meeting that you had. And I believe she said she didn't think she played any real role in lighting the fire under you, if only to to sort of reveal to you what was already inside you. Do you buy that? I mean, I kind of do. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have a lot of aspirations. They have, you know, talent and drive. But 
unless they see someone in front of them that's doing something similar, they don't really realize their potential. So to a degree, I think she just opened my eyes to make me realize what was already in front of me. But at the same token, had I not met her, I don't know if the drive would have been as strong at, at that at that age, at such a young age. Mm-hmm. No, you, you, you're absolutely right. When you are at that young age, seeing someone who looks like you or taps into something that you share at that age can be can mean everything. So, Lindsay, you are the most successful female skier, um, ski racer of all time with 80. I'm going to just read, make sure I get the numbers right. 82 career World Cup victories. You also won three Olympic medals, including the downhill at the Vancouver Olympics in, in 2010. Of all those victories, which of your victories means the most to you? I think winning the Olympics in Vancouver was the most meaningful simply because, you know, as we just talked about, you know, I dreamed about it since I was a kid. You know, my my family had given up so much. You know, we moved from Minnesota to Colorado for my skiing career. I'm I'm the oldest of five siblings. Um, and so it was no small feat for us to get to that point. And so I felt like when I won the Olympics, it was really a culmination of all of those sacrifices coming together. And uh, it was a relief. It was a joy. I cried. I laughed. It was really one of the, the best moments in my career, I'd say for sure. I want to go back to something you said earlier on when you, you were talking about um, your dad putting you on the skis at two and a half years old. Uh, and, and then after meeting Peekaboo Street, that your dad put together a 10-year plan. Was the Olympics part of that 10-year plan? Yeah, that was the goal. Um, you know, we wanted to make a plan that would that would get us to the Salt Lake Olympics. Um, and, you know, he, him being a racer himself, he knew exactly what what we had to do. You know, I had to start racing internationally. I had to um, start training more um, G, GS, Super G downhill. You know, I had to really expand my repertoire. I had to, um, again, travel abroad and, and be around other racers. Um, that were dominating at my age. So, so he, he really was the, the orchestrator behind, <laughs> you know, the, the tactics and getting to where we wanted to go. And I really have to credit him for that. And, and I mean, if for, for someone to believe in a nine-year-old with a dream like that is pretty, pretty amazing. Right. And, you know, you, you also mentioned sacrifices. Um, it does take a lot of sacrifice to get to where you are. And I'm just wondering, as a teenager, I mean, you dedicated your life to become an Olympian, giving up all the things that uh, regular teenagers prize, social life with other teens, friends, going out, all these things that uh, teens take for granted. If you had to do it again, would you do it again? Absolutely. Without, without question. I mean, I, did I give up a lot? Yes. And I think at the time it was it was often difficult, you know, to see my friends going and doing other other things that were seemed a lot more appealing. But, you know, I learned so many lessons being able to travel. I started traveling internationally by myself when I was nine years old. And um, while that seems, you know, weird to think about now, it, it seemed perfectly normal at the time and taught me so many lessons about life that I just would never have learned otherwise. And, uh, you know, I think it was absolutely worth it. Mm-hmm. So despite the challenges you faced, you, you, you proved your critics wrong. Uh, um, you did make the, 20, the 2002 Olympic team, but you write 
about how coaches continue to underestimate your abilities. Does the, does the hurt and frustration ever go away uh, over those who doubted you? I remember very specifically every time someone said I couldn't do something. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think I've mitigated the pain by, by proving them wrong and succeeding despite what they said. Um, but especially, you know, when I was, when I was 16, 17 years old, you know, overhearing my coaches saying that, you know, I wasn't going to make the team and, you know, they should put all of their eggs in, in the other athletes basket and, and, you know, we'll see if I ever make anything of myself. And that was really hard to hear. But, you know, as I said, I, I definitely um, remember those words. They fueled me and uh, many critics over the course of my career fueled me as well. So I think it worked out in the end. When you're talking about the, you know, favoring other people over you, are you talking about Julia Mancuso as being one of those people? Yeah, they specifically, you know, really thought that she was um, the next golden child, and and she was she's exceptionally talented. I mean, she's won many Olympic medals, so she, you know, to, to their credit, they were absolutely right. But they also completely wrote me off, and um, mm. I, you know, that was that was that was hard. You know, as a teenager, you really want your coaches to believe as much in you as, as you believe in your path. And, and I just didn't feel like I had that. And especially after, after overhearing, I, I knew I didn't have that. Well, so then what was that the trigger uh, that led to the start of your battle with depression? No, I, I didn't deal with depression until later in my career. Um, you know, after the Olympics, I was I'd moved out to Park City, Utah, and I was, you know, living with roommates and away from my family. And um, there was a lot going on in my family life. And it just was a very isolating time. Um, and I think that, you know, it may be a combination of the fact that the coaches didn't believe in me, but also because they demoted me. Um, I went from having the best uh, Olympic result on the women's side to going back down to lower level races um, in Europe. And you know, just really not feeling like all of the sacrifices I'd made were worth anything. So yeah, I guess potentially that had something to do with it, but I think mainly the isolation and um, you know, not having anyone to lean on kind of triggered that at that moment. When did, you, when did you come to understand that you were dealing with depression? Um, were you 16? Were you older than 16? And then what did you do, what did you do about it once you realized it? I was about 17, 18, and I was living with my roommates. And honestly, I, I wouldn't have really understood what it was if my roommate hadn't have been going through a similar situation. And he actually um, went to a doctor and was put on medication uh, for the same thing. And he noticed what I was going through. You know, I, I became very reclusive. I didn't want to go um, see any of my friends. I, I wasn't getting out of bed. And I knew that something was wrong when I stopped wanting to go to the gym. Um, you know, I've always been, I've always prided myself in my work ethic and I just had no desire whatsoever to go. And, and, um, so I talked to him and I actually went to the doctor more to rule out depression than anything else. But when I got there, you know, that was definitely not the case. And, um, thankfully I got, you know, some guidance. I learned a lot about depression in that moment and I was, um, given medication and it definitely helped get me through those moments and, um, helped me through the rest of my career, to be honest. You also suffered significant, a significant list 
of, of major injuries, including multiple knee surgeries, a concussion, uh, a season-ending ACL sprain. You've spoken about barely being able to get out of bed some days during your your ski career. Talk about those those dark days. Yeah, I mean, I kind of stopped counting my injuries after you know my, my major surgeries, but you know, I think it was during my during my second ACL surgery, I, I was out back to back seasons. Um, I had you know two ACLs and within an eight month span, um, I was watching the Olympics at home from my couch on crutches, and uh, I just really lost motivation. Um, you know, I was questioning what I was doing and why I was doing it. You know, I'd worked so hard to get back to the Olympics and then I blew my knee out uh, within the first few months of training um, right before the games. And um, it was a really difficult time for me, but I was very lucky that I had a good support system. My sisters, um, my physical therapist, Lindsay Winninger, um, you know, she <laughs> ripped the covers off me in bed uh, oftentimes and dragged me out and got me in the gym. and. You know, once I kind of got past a certain point of the rehab, I felt like I was making progress and that was the positivity that I, that I needed to kind of really get things going. But it was, it was a very challenging time. Mm -hmm. So then how, how did you overcome uh, depression? Is it something that you actually can, you can overcome? I don't know if, if the word overcome really fits into the into depression. I think it's something that, um, you know, there's obviously situational depression. And then I think, you know, there's obviously more clinical depression. But, you know, for me, it's just something it's more about taking care of my mental health as a whole. Um, I don't really look at it as, you know, oh, I have depression. I, I think about it as I need to take care of myself every day. And so I journal and um, I have a therapist, Dr. Mondo, and, um, you know, I, I make an effort to make sure that I'm in a good place, you know, that I'm not going down any, any dark holes that I'm not, that I, that I shouldn't be. Um, but I feel really great right now. You know, I've really taken some time to reflect after my career and, um, you know, really, really focus on, on my mental health in this time. And I feel like I'm in a great place. So I'm, I'm lucky. In fact, you set up a system. You talked to, you mentioned one of the things um, in there, and that was journaling. But and tell me if I'm wrong. But you also have building a support system around you, finding little joys every day. Um, your self-described unconventional style of preparation, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. Naps, which I'm fully, uh, 100% behind naps, and then a love of your sport. But let's go back to this self, your unconventional style of preparation. What is that? Um, like for, for mental health or for skiing? Yeah, which I, I just have the shorthand there. So talk about both. Um, well, I mean, I definitely, when I was preparing for my ski races, was a bit odd. You know, I always was like very... <laughs> maybe you call it OCD, but I was, I had my everything color coordinated. I laid everything out on, on, you know, the sofa beforehand. Um, I was like very meticulous. I also, you know, took meticulous notes and um, there's certain things that I'm, I'm, I don't know, a little bit odd about, uh, but I felt like over the course of my life that served me very well. Um, and, you know, I kind of bring that into my journaling too. You know, I feel like it's really important to write about the good times. You know, I think often 
we focus on the bad times. And so when you look back in your journal, you, know, you don't want to only have bad times written down. You know, I like to go back and reflect on things that really made me happy. And I think, you know, that in turn, you know, brings back those memories, which, which brightens my day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you retired from skiing in 2019 and you write the primary factor that led you to re- your retirement was the fact that your body simply gave out. And prior to your retirement, you write, I had reached a point where it was like I was skiing on one leg. How hard was it mentally and physically to grind through those injuries before you realized you needed to retire? That last season was really tough. I mean, I had three surgeries within a six or seven month span during the summer. Um, and you know, by the end I was skiing with two knee braces. I had no LCL. I had a bone bruise in my other knee, you know, cause I was, I have no cartilage on my right knee and bone on bone. So it was, I was a mess. And, you know, i I felt the weight of my last race, uh, really heavily on my shoulders because I wanted so badly to finish my career on a high. Um, but my second to last race, I actually crashed and, and I got a black eye and, Um, it derailed me a bit. So I I felt very lucky that I was able to pull through mentally and physically for that last and final race. And, you know, to come away with a bronze medal was, was definitely more than I could have hoped for. You know, it was that, that last season was definitely the opposite of what I had hoped for, but I, I made something of it nonetheless. You weren't able, after you retired, you weren't able to watch skiing on, uh, on television at all. Could you? No, the first year was really hard. You know, I, I really, I, I watched a couple just because I really wanted to support my teammates, but it was very hard. You know, I, I, I had a bit of resentment because I was envious, you know, I wanted, I wanted to still be there. You know, I didn't want to physically be in the position that I was in. Um, and, you know, it just, I, I was in a bad spot. So after a while, you know, after about a year and, and kind of through the pandemic, I really was able to reflect and, and accept the position that I was in. You know, I think when you change careers, especially when, you know, there's no option to go back, it's, it's a very tough transition. So um, um, I took that time during COVID to really reflect and now I'm in a great place. I can watch, I can watch races as much as I want and not feel as bad. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm definitely still a little bit jealous. I think I always will be, but um, I can watch my teammates and be exceptionally happy for them. Right. You know, um, during your skiing career, um, you were also in the spotlight for three years when you dated golf superstar uh, Tiger Woods. Did being in a high profile relationship have any impact uh, in your in your battle with your your mental health? Uh, No, you know, that was that was a totally separate thing. And, um, you know, I felt like you know, as I talked about my book, I, I didn't talk about my relationships because I, I, you know, I wanted to share my the lessons that I've learned and what I've learned about my, myself. It's all about, you know, my perspective and my story. Um, and, you know, I don't think that had any factor in my mental health at all. You know, in 2021, last year, several high profile athletes spoke out about their struggles with mental health. Two of them include of course, tennis uh, star Naomi Osaka and Olympic gold medalist uh, Simone Biles. Do you consider these women trailblazers when it comes to helping others deal with their own mental health struggles? 
I definitely think that, that, you know, what they did um, in their respective sports was incredible. Um, and I have to thank them so much because they've really brought the conversation to, to a global scale that we haven't seen before. Um, but there've been many other athletes that have spoken about it in the past, you know, uh, Michael Phelps, especially Kevin Love, Sean White. Um, but, you know, the fact that Simone talked about it and pulled out of her competition in the Olympics really shed light on it in in a way that hasn't been done before. So I really applaud her for the courage to do that. You know, you write about how you want to be a mentor off the slopes for the next generation of skiers. And in fact, you have mentored skiers, Breezy Johnson, Bella Wright, uh, other members of the U.S. women's team, and also Italian skier, Sofia Goja. What is the best advice uh, you've been able to give them? It's interesting. I mean, everyone kind of asks me different questions. I think it depends on the athlete. Um, but, you know, I, I really enjoy encouraging them, you know, and, and, um, you know, Breezy's always watching my videos from my past races and I love just talking to her about it and, you know, kind of sharing my experience and trying to help her as much as I can in her experience. So I don't know, for me, it's a very, it's just very humbling and it really makes me feel like I'm still a part of the sport in some small way. And um, I really, really want to see all of them succeed. You know, I I totally forgot we had audience questions, Lindsay. And so I'm gonna, uh, (laughs) my my bad. Um, Sylvia from Virginia has this question. How did the enormous commitment to your sport from an early age impact your life in other areas such as friendships, academics, non-athletic passions? Great question. I mean, it, it definitely took a toll on other areas of my life. Um, you know, I think to achieve success in anything, you have to make sacrifices. And so I, I didn't have many friends. Um, I had maybe two or three, and I still have those two or three today. You know, we're, we're very close. But um, I didn't really have much of a social life. I was a pretty big nerd. Um, I had braces and a perm and, um, you know, bangs all at the same time. So that didn't help my cause. Um, (laughs) and you know, you know, studying, studying while I was racing was difficult as well. I mean, I was in my first Olympics when I was 17. Um, and there wasn't a lot of time for studying because I was always traveling. So, um, it was hard to manage, but, um, but I figured it out, you know, I, I definitely figured it out and, and, um, Again, I think all of those sacrifices were well worth it. Um, let's talk about another skier, American Alpine skier, Michaela Schifrin. Uh, she won a gold medal in 2014 and 2018. Um, next month, the Olympics, how do you think she's going to do? I think she's going to do amazingly well. I mean, she's had such a great season so far. I think she's, they just set up the first run of the night race in Schladming and she's in fifth place. So um, you know, I, I, I really think she's going to medal in, in multiple disciplines. I know she's going to try to race in all five. So I'm excited to watch her. I think that would be, you know, if she could, if she could medal in all five, that would be incredible feat for, for Alpine skiing. We're running out of time, but I got to squeeze in two more, que- two more questions for you. Um, you represent Under Armour, Rolex, Land Rover. You have a new makeup line that you're designing. What do you enjoy the most during your post uh, your post-skiing career? 
Um, I mean, I love all of it. I mean, I, I definitely, I think I enjoy driving, driving my, my Range Rover fast because I don't have as much adrenaline in my life anymore. Um, but you know, <laughs> I love working with all of, all of my sponsors and my businesses and I'm in venture capital now and investing. And, um, I just, I love the challenge of learning and, um, going through new experiences. So there's been so many great opportunities. I feel very lucky to, to be in this spot and, and uh, the future is is very exciting. You're also uh, you announced a partnership with Tempo, which is an at home personal training company. Uh, you're going to be doing tra- training programs as well. Yeah, I am. I already did a couple of of programs, and you can you can get it already um, on the Tempo app and and on the Move and on the on the Studio. But I love it. I mean, I've I've really searched through COVID trying to find a way to work out at home in a way that I enjoyed. And Tempo was really the best thing I have found. Um, and I really thoroughly enjoy it, which is saying a lot for me because I really don't like classes. I'm not I'm not I'm not one of those people, but um I'm really excited to be with Tempo and to share with the world um fitness because it's been such a huge part of my life. You say you don't like classes, meaning you don't like going into somebody's gym or studio with a bunch of other people and being yelled at by, yeah. <laughs> by somebody. Yeah, no, that's just not for me. That's not for me. I don't want to sit my Nope. Nope. I would exercise is just me, myself, me, myself, and I. Um, we've got Lindsay. We've got ninety seconds left, and I know. I got in a, into a little bit of your business when I asked about Tiger Woods, but I'm going to end by asking a little bit more about some of your business. <laughs> um, because at one point you were um, engaged to um, NHL hockey star PK Supon, but then the, you broke that engagement off. And at last check, you were dating uh, the actor Diego, Diego Os- Osorio. You two still together? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, for me, the reason I, why I didn't talk about it in my book is because I just don't feel like it's a relevant conversation. You know, I, I, my, my personal life has been very public in the past. And I think for me moving forward, it's important to keep that, that line of separation and then try, you know, to keep things like that as private as I can. You know, I got to respect that answer. You know, that is that is the the perfect answer. And on that note, we're going to end it there. Skiing great and now author Lindsay Vaughn. Thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Available now.